up, Hume Lake. Is this the Bakersfield crew? Yeah. Uh, anybody from LA? Right here? There you go. Hey, uh, well, I'm praying for you guys. All right, so my name is Johnny Artavanis. Let me just tell you, I am thrilled to be here at one of my uh, favorite places on planet Earth. Uh, I lived here for five years. I, yeah, I just love this place. I met my wife here. Yeah, her name is Kate. Do we have a picture of my family? Okay, there's my little family. That's my little uh, baby we got there. Uh, where's that next photo, Kayla? I'll show you. The, that's her when she was born. Little Buddha baby. Um, so I met my wife here, Katie. Uh, we worked here uh, for a number of years, and uh, you can get rid of the baby now. Now it looks like an idol. Um, uh, I just, I love being here. Uh, let me uh, kind of just recap. Uh, I'm from LA area. I hate mayonnaise. My wife's name is Katie. I'm a Christian, so I like the Lakers and fried eggs. Um, the most important thing about me is I have been saved by Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm, I'm a member of my church. My best friend, her name's Katie. I met her here, I said, and then I'm trying to think of anything else important that you want to know. I'm 5'11 and three quarters. I feel like it'd be kind of dishonest to tell you I'm six foot. Um, but that's the reality. Um, so I'll tell you a little bit about my wife. Uh, I met her here. And when we were dating, I was, it was long distance because I was living here. She was living in Long Beach. A couple weeks ago, we had her birthday. Or last week was her birthday. And we were kind of gone a lot. So I was trying to do something special for her birthday. And I'm thinking, man, I really got to go all out. Because if you know my wife, Katie, she like goes ham for my half birthday. Um, and I was like, okay, I got this idea. I'm like, Katie, okay, think with me. Uh, I think I'm going to get us a boat. I'm going to take us to the Channel Islands. Then I'm going to take us to a steakhouse at dinner, but I'm going to zip line with you on the island and we're going to ride bikes all day. It's going to be so romantic and awesome. Doesn't this sound great? And I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, Come on, come on, take notes, boys, you know? And uh, I was like, how does that sound, honey? And she goes, can we just go to Knott's Berry Farm? Um, and I go to Knott's Berry Farm to get bullied by 11-year-olds. Have you guys ever been to Knott's Berry Farm? It's kind of like, like the Nineveh of Disneyland. And I went to Knott's Berry Farm, and I'm getting, I mean, how many, anybody there last Friday, just so I can not talk trash on you? Okay, so... It's like these, these uh, young dudes, they're like 11, 12, they're like, hey, scram, you know, like, let me cut in line. And I haven't been bullied before. Um, but if you're like, man, bullying's real, go to Knott's Berry Farm and you'll experience it. Um, well, hey, my objective this week is for uh, you to know more about the heart of God in the Bible. Uh, that's the only way we could ever know who God is, is if he reveals himself in the truth. And I want you to think with me because if you guys are in ninth grade or in 12th grade, you do math with letters in it, okay? 
The world is complicated and people want to dumb down the message of the Christian faith to you and I refuse to do so because, as I said, you do math with letters in it. And maybe you've wondered uh, this last couple years, I mean, turn on the news today and you look at the madness of everything and you go, man, what is God actually like? Uh, what is his heart actually like? Is he uh, begrudgingly bestow mercy on sinful people? Is he a Scrooge? Is God hesitant to extend hope to those who have none? Is God like a kid who hates to share? How does God view me? And if you ever ask that question, I'm really glad you're here this weekend because as Harrison said, the book of Jonah is going to reveal the heart of God. Maybe you've grown up in a setting where you're outside of the church. Others of you have been like thinking the veggie tales for Jonah and others of you had no idea what the veggie tales are and you're welcome. Um, but maybe you're wondering, what is God like? And I couldn't be any more pumped to open up God's word. You know why? It's because it's the only thing I know in my life that's 100% truthful. And if you could be honest with yourself for just a minute, you know that, do you have service? Okay, LTE. If you could be honest with yourself for just a minute, you would just know that, man, I just can't, I can't really figure out what's true anymore. And so that's why the word of God is precious. Because maybe you think your heart is too bankrupt for God to fill with the riches of his mercy and grace. And what God is going to show us through his word to this, tonight and this weekend is that's impossible. Maybe you think you're so good that you don't need mercy, and God is going to show you through his word that you are likely more lost than the person that thinks they could never receive mercy because they're so bad. I want to turn with you to Jonah, and I want to read a passage, and then I want you to find the drama of the story with me because this is a real account. If you have Jonah 1 in your Bibles, I want to read the first chapter for you, and then I want to break it down. Jonah 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it up for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, how is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call in your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened and they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? 
for the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, for they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let this man perish on account of, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let's stop there. Now, in the Old Testament, the way that God revealed himself was often through the method of a prophet. Prophets didn't just know about God. They knew God. They were intimately acquainted with the purposes of God, the plan of God, and they had a first account way of hearing from God, and they would communicate that to the rest of the people. They didn't just have an awareness that God was powerful. No, they had an experience of God's power in their own life, and they spoke mightily on behalf of God. And I want to recap with you, if you haven't grown up in the church or maybe you are familiar with the stories, two of the most prominent prophets in the Old Testament, their names were Elijah and Elisha. Now, Elijah is the one who kind of went at it with the prophets of Baal in the Old Testament. He says, I serve Yahweh, who is the only true God. He was also the man that stood up to a wicked king, Ahab. It was also Elijah who would ascend to heaven on a golden chariot. Now, Elijah was known as the prophet of faithfulness, and he would years later stand shoulder to shoulder with Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. This was a remarkable man. Now, Elijah had kind of like a assistant that everyone knew was next. His name was Elisha. Then as Elijah was about to ascend to heaven in a golden chariot, if you've ever read the story as kids, Elisha says to him, now Elijah, please, please, before you go and meet your maker, give me a double portion of the spirit of God that is within you because I wanna serve God well. So please give me a double portion of the spirit of God that resides within you so that I might be a mighty vessel for God. And Elijah consents, he strikes the water, and then he goes to meet his maker. Now, Elisha is also a prophet of faithfulness. He prays, and he shuts the sky for three years. When young men mock him, a bear comes out of the woods and mauls 42 young men. A gnarly story, right? When Naaman is leprous, he heals him of leprosy. When a child dies, he raises him up to life. Now, Elisha, like Elijah before him, would go to meet his maker. Now, if you're an Israelite, you are absolutely dependent upon prophets to hear from God. And when that guy dies, there's a question in every single person's mind. What would it be? Who's, who's next? Who's up next? And then we read in the following chapter in 2 Kings 14, following the death of Elisha, it says that the land of Israel was restored to their Solomonic borders. That means the borders that were there when King Solomon was king. Now, you would have to never watch the news to be confused about how precious the land of Israel is to the people of Israel, right? And so it says that the land of Israel was restored to their Solomonic borders. That's when they were most powerful. And then it says, comma, just as Jonah 
the son of Amittai had prophesied. So something happens here. It says that things are happening and beforehand we can assume that Jonah had made a prophecy that God is gonna restore our land. He's gonna give us back the land that was rightfully ours. And then it says, just as Jonah had prophesied. So here's what millions of people are then saying. Did you hear? Jonah was right. Jonah is a prophet of God. He hears from God. Jonah had fulfilled prophecies in his own lifetime. This was rare. A lot of prophets made prophecies, but they didn't all be, they weren't all fulfilled in the lifetime that they lived. Make sense? And it says that these things were happening just as Jonah had said, Jonah is a big deal. He is a leader. Oh, I know who we can trust. We can trust Jonah. He's next. He's intimately acquainted with the purposes of Yahweh. No need to fear. We have our next leader. It sets a little bit of the scene for you for Jonah. He's not some random prophet. He is the guy. And God is going to come to this prophet who has recently been recognized as the dude. And he says something in chapter one. It's a call, a command to go. He says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. God doesn't say, hey, Jonah, if you're ever passing by, I want you to go and make a routine drop. No, he says, I want you to get up, stop what you're doing. I'm not consulting your calendar. I want you to do something for me. Arise, it's an active verb. Get up and go now. And he wants him to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is in modern day Baghdad. I want you to just recognize that because when we look at the Bible, it's a real people at a real time in real history. And Nineveh was a wicked place, not in the sense where they liked the Golden State Warriors and ate pineapple pizza. I mean, real, real wickedness. Check your heart. In the Old Testament book of Nahum, here's how Nahum refers to the Ninevites. He says, woe to the city of blood, full of plunder, many casualties, many dead. And then God says, I'm against you, Nineveh. And sometimes we think that the Bible is just a story. And so here's what the reliable source of Wikipedia says regarding the people of Nineveh. It says, Ashurbanipal, the grandson of Sennacherib, was known to tear off the limbs of his victims. They would burn people alive, torture adults, and they used to hang the heads of their enemies outside their city gates. They would burn them alive. They also worshiped many gods, Nabu, Asher, and Adad. They worshiped a goddess of love, Ishtar. This wasn't just that they were different. It's that this was the most wicked nation on the face of the earth. They were murderous and they were idolatrous. And God is enraged over their sin. It says that their wickedness, in verse two, has come up before me, meaning that the scent of the wickedness, the idea was that it comes up into the nostrils of God. It's foul, and he hates it. Now, what is Jonah's response? It says, but Jonah rose and fled to Tarshish. So Jonah is a prophet. What people want is a prophet. If you're a prophet, what you wanna do is communicate God's message to God's people. But Jonah, does he take the opportunity to declare that God is merciful even to the most wicked? No. 
he runs to the other side of the known world. And that's what we see in the backyard here. This would be our Nineveh. And Jonah saying, we don't go to Nineveh. We don't talk about Nineveh. No, 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 we don't talk about Bruno. Um, he told me my fish would die the next day. Dead. Um, it's in the Bible as well. So he's saying, I won't go to Nineveh. I'm not going to do it. And the reason was, it's not just because he's a, oh, just afraid of the evil that he'll encounter there. The reason he doesn't want to go to Nineveh, Nineveh is told to us in the last chapter. Turn to chapter 4 real quick. Jonah 4 verse 2. He said, he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Jonah's going to say, I knew it, God. I knew that you were a God who delights in saving sinners. You're not a God who is only for those who have good track records. You're a God who is eager to save the worst of the worst. I knew it. I knew it. You shouldn't save people like that. They're hostile. They're pagans. They probably would have been disinterested in the gospel in the first place. They're not church going. They don't deserve your mercy, God. I do. And so Jonah runs. He runs because there are only two options in life a running towards the will of God or a rejection and a fleeing from it. And what we see in Jonah is a very description of sin at its very core. I want to describe sin as we see it in Jonah and then I want to look at three different scenes with you throughout the rest of the chapter. What sin ultimately is and what we see in Jonah is a rejection of the word of God. It says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And here's what that means. It's not like Jonah is hanging out one day, playing golf, and he hears like something, wait, was that you, God? Eh, I think maybe God's something. No, it literally means it's used a hundred times in the Old Testament. And in Hebrew, when it says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, what it really means is that the hands of God came and gripped Jonah. And it said, go and do this. There's no confusion. And every single time it says the word of the Lord came into someone, it was always marked by a stark simplicity and clarity. There's nothing to be confused about here. Jonah says, or God says to Jonah, go and preach. There's no confusion, no need for commentaries and no need for academics. You go and you preach to the heathen city. That's just it, isn't it? The problems people have with the Bible are rarely the bits that are hard to understand. The problem people have with the Bible and with God's word are the bits that are easiest to understand and difficult to submit to. And Jonah says, I will not go. He says he rose up, he found a ship, found a fare, paid the fare, and went down, down, down. We read that multiple times. And so he's rejecting God's command to go and proclaim the message of mercy to heathen people, but he gets on a heathen boat with heathen sailors heading to another heathen city. Unbelief always finds what it seeks, and with a burning conscience and miserable anxiety, Jonah buys a one-way ticket from God, a perfect picture of paradise, running from God. Question for you, how many times have you run from the word of God? Every time you sin. Every time you sin, your heart is not aligned with God's word. You reject what God has spoken and you get on the boat and run from God. And the devil will always have a ship waiting 
for you. You will pay the fare, but he'll provide the boat. So sin is not only a rejection of God's word. Secondly, and we see this, it's a departure from God's presence. I want to read this verse 3 again because I want you to catch the theme. It says, Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which he was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down. We see went down into, the, into it with them from the presence of the Lord. Then verse 4, it says, from the presence of the Lord. And then verse 10, it'll say, from the presence of the Lord. This is what sin does. It always brings you down and it always brings you away from the presence of God. Something is becoming clear here for Jonah. Jonah knows the presence of God in his life, and he is not only objecting to the clear word from God, he is trying to rid himself of the sense that God is near to me. God's presence, if you're a believer in walking with him, is the greatest comfort in your life, is it not? And to those of you who run and reject God's word, it is the thing that you long to rid yourself of. And this is what Jonah does. Instead of going 500 miles east to Nineveh, he goes 2,500 miles west to Tarshish. It was like going to the moon. A rejection of the word of God always leads to a departure from the presence of God. And this is sin at its most fundamental core. This is what we see in the garden. We see a clear word from God to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, opening pages of your Bible. And then the serpent comes and the first question that's asked in all of the Bible is a question that puts the word of God in doubt. Did God really what? Say. And so then there's a rejection of the word of God and then what happens immediately? There's a sense where they feel their nakedness and then what do they do? They run and hide from the presence of the one who sees everything. Because sin, a rejection of God, always leads to a departure from God. And why do we do this? It's because the presence of sin in our life causes you to flee from the presence of the one that has no sin within himself. And I want to look at three scenes with you throughout the rest of the chapter because Jonah is guilt-ridden. And I can ask every single person in here, I sit down, I travel almost every week, and I meet many people, I ask them, hey, what's your religious background? And sometimes they tell me they're atheists. And I always just ask, my first question with an atheist is always, what are you guilty about? Because you don't have to be religious to feel guilt in your life. And Jonah at this point is consumed by guilt. And I can ask you tonight, are you guilty about anything? Something that no one else knows about like Jonah, but you know you've rejected God's word and you've rejected God's presence. And so we're going to look at three scenes, guilt pursued, guilt confessed, and then guilt surrendered, guilt pursued. Look at verse 4. It says, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. I want you to look at that in verse 4. It says, the Lord hurled a great spear. Another time this word is used in the Bible, it's the same word where King Saul threw a spear at David. It means that the Lord is the one causing this storm and God is the one who is pursuing Jonah. Jonah's not the one that recognizes his sin and will later on turn to God. God is the one who is so gracious to come after those who sin. Jonah deserts God, but God does not desert Jonah. Jonah has earned the right for God to say, you run from me, Jonah, I'll run from you. Jonah, you turn your back on me, I'll turn my back on you. Do you want to know the worst thing that could ever happen if you run from God? 
The worst thing that could ever happen to you if you're running from God is that God gives you success in escaping him only to meet the inescapable one in judgment. The most gracious thing God can do is pursue you when you reject him. And this is what God does. He pursues Jonah and he's coming after him in judgment. You might say, I've done it, I've escaped God. I pray not. God comes after him. And then in verse five, it says, the sailors became afraid and every man prayed to his God and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it up for them. I want you to think with me, these were experienced fishermen. Okay, I, I, I've gone deep sea fishing a couple times. Last year on my birthday, went with some of my friends, didn't get anything. Uh, it was a joke, I'm terrible at fishing. Uh, I'm just not really sporty. Okay, so I went deep sea fishing. Now, I, sometimes it gets kind of rough and you're looking around and you're going, man, and you look at the captain and no concern. I fly on planes a lot. Sometimes there will be times where like the plane will drop. Ever been on a plane like that? Nod your head. And you'll look at the flight attendant and how are they often? Just chill. And then you look at them and you feel rest assured, right? Picture it with me. Let's say you're on a plane with a pilot that flies every single day and he hits a little bit of turbulence and then you look at him and instead of being calm and composed, he's going, oh dear God, save us, right? A little concern at that point? That's what's happening here. These are people that sail and are on the sea every single day. They've seen turbulence before and they're not like, Jonah, we're good, bro. There's like, no, throw everything overboard. What's your name? You might not be essential. Get off. You know, that's what they're doing. And so Jonah, where is he? Jonah is sound asleep. 5B, but Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship laying down and fallen sound asleep. How can this be? I want you to think with me. Stuff is flying. There were tongue and groove boards on these ships. And what he would have heard is that, and they would have begun to just burst. It says that the ship was about to break up. How is Jonah fast asleep? Well, there's a reality there that you and I can confess. Sin is exhausting. It drains, it saps, and it sucks the life out of those who are running from God. Jonah's conscience is running a million miles an hour and he's exhausted because the race that he is running from God is tiring. You ever run from God? Jonah is sleeping while all around him is chaos. He is hibernating. The same word here for sleep is the word when God puts Adam to sleep to take a rib and make Eve. He's not just snoozing. He's out. He's gonzo. He doesn't hear the howling of the wind. He doesn't hear the men screaming because not only is sin exhausting, sin is blinding. It clogs your vision from seeing what's actually happening. And Jonah is sleeping through the warnings of God and the invitations of God to return and to repent. As long as sin breaks your heart, there is still hope. But we are by nature restful rebels rather than restless pleaders for God's grace. We harden our hearts 
so that when the storms arrive, when afflictions come, we blind ourselves to what's actually happening. And Jonah is exhausted by sin. Some of you guys are hiding such a deep level of sin even now that just trying to juggle all the pieces of maintaining the lie of your life is fatiguing. Verse six. So the captain approached him and said, how is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps, I mean, listen to the irony of this. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Oh, does your God care, Jonah? The irony of this is that Jonah had been sent on a mission because God does care. God profoundly cares. Does your God care? And it says they begin to cry on their God. They're crying out for their gods. There's an inborn subconsciousness to the reality of God within every single person that when life seems to be ending, they cry out to God. They're saying, cry out to yours, Jonah. Does he care at all? And Jonah's listening, going, does my God care at all? Yeah, he cares so much, and that's my problem with him. I hate that he cares. I hate that he cares for people like the Ninevites. They don't deserve God's mercy. Verse seven, each man said to his mate, come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account the calamity has struck. And pause there. So this, they're gonna decide. So there has to be a deity mad at us for this storm, okay? And in the way that they used to do that in ancient times in the Old Testament, we don't do this anymore, was they would cast lots. And it'd be two, it'd be two die, one black, one white. And if they were both black, it meant yes. If they were both white, it meant no. They're going to cast lots, and Jonah's about to watch them, and the whole time Jonah is watching them, he knows the lot is going to fall on me, but he doesn't interject and go, guys, don't waste your time. It's my fault. I'm running from God. There's these dramatic lines in the Bible that are often just quickly read, but we miss the drama of it. Find the drama here, because this isn't just a flannel board story. This is something we need to consider. It says, so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah Jonah can no longer shield himself. The lot has fallen on him, and instantly he's pierced by the reality of his own sin. He can't hide any longer from God. Has a lot ever fallen on you where you feel like you can run no further from God? And then they begin to ask him questions. Verse eight, then they said to him, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And every single question they asked Jonah, it was like a prick of his conscience. Ow, 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 what's your occupation? Oh, I'm a prophet of Yahweh. Who are you from? I am from the people of the one true God. Where are you supposed to be going? I'm supposed to be going to Nineveh. The only question he doesn't answer is what his occupation is because he's too ashamed to contradict himself by saying his profession is a prophet. He says, and I want to look secondly with you, at guilt confessed. First, we looked at guilt pursued, guilt confessed in verses 9 and 10. He said to him, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. 
Then the men became extremely frightened. And they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. They understand something. These are guys that lived on the sea. And Jonah's saying, I am running from the God who made the sea. He is the one in Job 38 that says, waves come thus far. He is the God who ordains everything in creation. And then it says the men become even more afraid because they realize they're not dealing with a mayor of a small town. This is the God and the king of the universe. He's not a mall cop. He is a sovereign ruler. And then they ask the only logical question. How could you do this? Because the men have an understanding that is even more deep than Jonah at the time. How could you sin and reject such a God? Not a local deity, but the God of all of the earth. Why do you disobey this God? Are you tired of him, Jonah? Has he been unfaithful to you, Jonah? Is he unloving? Has he mistreated you, Jonah? Press the question home to your own heart. Has God done something in your own life to cause you to desert him? Jonah says, no, there's nothing. This God is a holy God. And what the men are beginning to understand on the boat is that God is not like one of us. This was no ordinary storm. It's important for us to understand fundamentally because you'll never understand who you are fundamentally until you get this. God is a holy God. Why would you do this? Why would you sin against the God of all the earth? In Isaiah, there's this exalted vision of who God is. You need to study it more in your own time. But all of the earth and the seraphim in heaven, which literally means burning ones, are crying out to God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his what? Glory. Do you know what that word holy means? Maybe you've been singing it your entire life and have little understanding of what it means, and that's okay. Can I just tell you simply what it does mean? For God to be holy, it literally means that God is totally other. He's different. He's not like you or me. He's not a genie. He's not a bigger and better version of you and me. He is totally other. And the best way to explain what this looks like is to picture the sailors who are trembling at the presence of the one who is the true God. Because they're recognizing God's otherness because Jonah is saying, he is not just a God who is morally pure, he is totally other in the way that he is the one controlling every single thing. And this holy God cannot tolerate sin. Cannot tolerate sin. He's not a cool professor. He is a righteous judge. He doesn't grade on a curve. He grades according to his perfect standard. And that's what it means for God to be holy. And whenever we sin, we're not just sinning against a holy God. We're sinning against a loving God who has never done us any ill. And there in the boat, Jonah was facing judgment. Nothing will make sense in scripture until you understand who God is. And these people, Pagan sailors get it more than Jonah. If you don't understand that God is holy, 
Why would God's love be precious to you? It's only precious to those who realize how unworthy they are of it. If you don't recognize God as holy, why would you need a son? If you don't recognize God as holy, you would never realize and recognize your need to be rescued. If you don't see God as holy, why would you need his mercy? Only recognizing God's holiness will help you to recognize the weight of your sin and the punishment you deserve from God. You are either an enemy of God or a child of God. And what God has commissioned Jonah to do is extend mercy to those who are the vilest and most wicked because he is not just holy, he's a God who's eager to save. I wanna look thirdly with you at guilt surrendered in verses 11 and following. It says, then the men became extremely frightened and they said to him, how could you do this? For, I'm reading 10. For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to me, he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. However, the, mon, the men rode desperately to return to land for they could not. Th- think about this. These people that don't know God are more desperate to save Jonah than Jonah was desperate to save those whom God had already promised to extend his mercy. Then they called on the Lord and said, we earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us for you, O Lord, have done this as you please. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea and the sea stopped, it's raging. Jonah finally says, throw me overboard because Jonah recognizes that a confession of sin means that you're no longer harboring it to yourself. So many of you live a life of utter secrecy. What are the secrets in your life? Questions are piercing, and that's why I ask them. Confession is the first step, and Jonah says, I am running from God. But a confession of sin always leads to a surrender of sin, meaning that I no longer try to defend myself. Those who defend themselves can never receive mercy. It's only those who condemn themselves that receive mercy. And Jonah has now recognized, I have no, I have no ability to demand the mercy of God. His rebellion has been broken for the moment. He's guilty before God. And in the face of death and raging sea, he declares he is worthy to perish. No more phony confession. The Lord has brought him to surrender. He is a guilty man. Jonah doesn't know there's a fish. What he knows is that my sin deserves death. And so does yours. So does yours. And I don't know if, any, I mean, I don't know if anybody's ever told you that. Jonah will pay for his sin in an immediate earthly way in the belly of a whale. but everyone who doesn't know Jesus Christ will pay for their sin in the belly of hell for all of eternity. There's no way around that biblically. Sin always deserves death. And Jonah knows this. And so he says, I cannot defend myself. 
throw me overboard. Couple questions. These men threw everything overboard to save themselves. They threw away everything they were holding on to to try to save their life. There's imagery there that we can use as analogies. They threw everything overboard to try to save their life. Have you ever thrown away everything you're holding on to to find your life in Christ? Have you ever cried out to God and asked him to rescue you so that you can sail safely across the sea into eternity? I don't like to build sequentially too much in regards to like making you sit in one thing over a long period of time. The Bible is ultimately, and I'll be done in just two minutes. Uh, that's a euphemism for four. The Bible is ultimately a book about one person. The Bible is a book about Jesus Christ. So turn to Matthew. I want you to see something. We're going to look at this probably each of the next couple days. Matthew 12. In verse 39. Let's start in verse 38. Matthew 12, 38. Give me a yip-yip when you're there. Okay. Matthew 12, 38, I'll start. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and they will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus says he is the greater Jonah. And I want to recap what we read. Jonah, our earthly Jonah, was exhausted and fell asleep on a ship the greater Jonah, we would also read, would be exhausted in Mark's account and fall asleep on a ship. There are so many similarities between our Jonah in the Old Testament and our greater Jonah in the New, but so many great differences. Jonah that we just read fell asleep because he was totally exhausted by his disobedience. The greater Jonah fell asleep from being weary in sustained obedience. One slept under the frown of God. One slept under the favor of God. One could not calm the sea until he was thrown over. One rises and says, hush, be still. And the greater Jonah, Jesus Christ, speaks to you tonight through his word and says, oh sinner, if you're outside of Christ, you are a breaker of his law you are a fleer of his presence, a defier of his word, and yet you sleep while your soul is at stake. And the greater Jonah grabs you by the collar and says, oh sinner, arise, wake up, and receive my mercy. Let me pray. God, we love you, and we're so thankful for the word of God that is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and able to pierce us, God. 
God, we looked at tonight that sin is a running and rejecting of your word and it's a running and rejecting of your presence. And yet, God, as we look at the story of Jonah, we see and are reminded of the greater Jonah who bids us to receive his mercy. We love you, Lord, and we're thankful that you love us. We pray this in your name and all God's people said, Amen.